Welcome as we explore our pathway toward a more perfect union. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is Frank Falvey, your host for a journey to a more perfect union. And today, we're going to be talking about the environment. And we have a regular panel, PJ. Yay. We have Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, who saw in person how I hit a golf ball out of the sand onto the downslope of the green and went directly into the hole. I can attest. (laughs) (laughs) We have Jeff Roy, our state rep. Frank, great to be here and great to be with everyone else on the panel today. And Natalina Linos, good morning. Good morning, Frank. And we have two special guests. Jeff, could you introduce Ted McIntyre? And after that, Natalia, could you introduce Casey Bowers? I would be happy to. Ted McIntyre is uh, one of the most knowledgeable uh, persons that I know of on, on climate change and in energy-related issues. He's a scientist. Lucky for us, he happens to be a resident of the town of Franklin. And for those of you who may have participated, he uh, was one of the panelists on a a climate change program that we did uh, just last year. And uh, we did an op-ed piece uh, together just a couple of months ago, hoping for a climate change bill out of Massachusetts. And four months later, Guess what happened? Climate bill was signed by the governor. So thank you, Ted, and welcome to our show. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, hi, everybody. Glad to be here. And I'm happy to introduce Casey Bowers, who's the Assistant Vice President for Government Relations at the Environmental League of Massachusetts. She knows the ins and outs of how the policies at the local level. I'm so excited to have you on our panel this morning. Thank you all for having me. Who who would like to uh, begin? Well, let me set it up since uh, we just did a landmark piece of climate legislation in the Massachusetts legislature, and I think uh, that'll provide a good context for uh, this discussion today. It's something that well, I, I'm going to say most of us recognize uh, because I, on the heels of this climate change, I got the most outrageous email the other day from a constituent saying, this is what you're most proud of this month, and, and I have to say, It still shocks me that uh, people believe that uh, climate change is a hoax, but uh, we've got some folks here today who are really involved in both the science and the policymaking around climate change. But let me tell you a little bit about the bill that we passed uh, in this session and the the governor signed uh, on, on March 26. The bill sets some real ambitious goals for greenhouse gas emissions and requires the uh, Commonwealth to at least reduce emissions by 50% uh, by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And uh, I'll emphasize, those are very ambitious goals. It's going to take a lot of hard work to get there, but it puts us on a track uh, to save the world for for future generations. Uh, I've made the joke with uh, folks that uh, in looking ahead, Um, I realize and I understand I'm going to be 89 years old 
by the time we get to net zero. So it's not about me and my generation. It's more about my kids and, and their kids and uh, what type of a world we're going to deliver to them. Uh, besides that, uh, you know, we have some environmental justice uh, provisions in the law that recognize that people in those communities have been, you know, harmed uh, greater by climate change, and we need to address that. We call for a, a new opt-in municipal uh, stretch code that's going to require uh, more energy efficient buildings, and it's going to require folks to look at net zero as the goal in uh, making their buildings. Uh, it increases calls for renewable energy, and the one that I'm most excited about is we upped the requirement to 5,600 megawatts of, of offshore wind. Uh, 14 miles off the coast of Massachusetts, we have probably the most robust source of wind in the contiguous United States. We ought to be taking advantage of that and getting that clean energy into our homes and buildings. Uh, and we also have some uh, increases in calls for uh, electric vehicles and uh, the charging stations that are, are needed to, uh, to supply energy to those vehicles. There's a host of things in this bill, but I think I've given you uh, some of the highlights. The final piece I'll talk about that bill is uh, workforce development. We've pumped in money. We know that this industry is going to require more skilled workers in renewables and particularly offshore wind. So we're pumping money into our colleges, universities, and high schools to fund programs to train workers for these uh, exciting fields. And uh, with that, I'd love to hear uh, Ted's thoughts on, on the legislation and the science leading up to it. Well, Jeff, you're right that the bill is landmark and it's various words can describe it, but there's lots and lots of profoundly useful changes and policies set up in there. I guess one of the things that I would want to put into the mix is the concept that you touched on, Jeff, is that this bill, the enormity of what we are trying to do to get to net zero by 2050 is a hundred year struggle, right? It is something that our children will be dealing with. And so the bill which is landmark, is sort of the predicate for our policies that will have to go on for the next 30, 30, 40, 50 years. And I think this is a great, the bill represents the commitment of Massachusetts and the understanding of the challenge that we have. And I think in that, I mean, all the particulars I think are fascinating. We ought to be discussed. But the bigger context is that this is now a path that we've chosen and we got to head in the right direction over decades. And, and maintaining that consensus around the commitment is kind of a long-term challenge. Casey, can I, I mean, what's your, you're uh, in the game too, right? So. No, I think that's exactly right. And there's a reason the title of this bill was called the Roadmap for the Next Generation, you know, to address climate change. And it really does lay out a roadmap, including very significant timelines for how we will get there and legally enforceable benchmarks to ensure that we do get there. It's, no, it's um, important to note that when we have set targets, Massachusetts has reached them. And I do think that it really has spurned both our economy, but also our workforce development. As the chairman mentioned, we've done a great job of actually rising to the occasion. And I believe we can do so again with this bill. And it's really great to see the legislature as well as the governor coming together to officially sign the bill. Although it took, you know, certainly a little more back and forth, I think, than anyone 
anticipated and a few more probably gray hairs starting to appear on my head. But I think we can all agree at the end of the day and for a community that isn't often pleased with the rate of progress, I would say that this is a really critical bill at a really critical time that will set us up to where we need to be. But I'll turn it back over to the chairman and uh, Dr. Linos as well. Just want to touch on one thing uh, that Casey had mentioned. And yeah, this was a long way to get to this bill. In fact, uh, the legislature put this bill on the governor's desk three times before March of 2026. And you know, I want to give my kudos to the former chair of uh, telecommunications utilities and, and energy, who is now a leader in the House, leader Tom Golden. Uh, he really shepherded this bill uh, through the House and put it on the governor's desk three times. And the, the governor the third time sent it back to the uh, legislature with some amendments and you know, within days of that coming back, uh, I was appointed the new chair of TUE. So usually when you get a new chairmanship, um, you have some time to breathe and, you know, become uh, familiar with the staff on the committee and the uh, advocates in the uh, issue. But uh, when the speaker gave me the job, he said, uh, I'm sure you've seen that the governor has sent back a climate change bill with some amendments. I said, oh, yeah, I've been reading about that. And he goes, well, that's your problem now. And over the next uh, five to six weeks, it was uh, reaching out to uh, folks. And I think Ted was one of the first people I reached out to. I sat with uh, Casey and the team and, uh, at the Environmental League and you know, just tried to work through some of those issues w- that were there. And it was uh, a daunting task to get something to the governor's desk that he would actually sign. And I think he took pride in signing at this time and made a big ceremony out of it because it was uh, in, contains some very important pieces. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to have been part of the team to get it over the finish line, but there were so many voices and uh, people involved in this effort uh, that it's, uh, it's great to see that Massachusetts is going to return as a leader on the topic of uh, climate change. And I want to jump in as a public health person, you know, the the why, like, why do we need to be leaders on climate change? We need to be leaders, obviously, because this is an existential threat for for our generation, for our children's generation. And we can't lose sight of that. This isn't just us setting targets for the sake of setting targets or ambition. This is really a, a problem where everyone at every level and, you know, the my co-panelists know this, that I worked at the UN for a long time. This also isn't a problem that's going to be solved just by Massachusetts. But Massachusetts doing well and being at the front helps bring others along. And I think that is um, that symbolic significance. And something that our panel talks about a lot is um, racial justice. And I think that the governor did, and this bill, is quite um, ambitious, quite strong on the environmental racism piece. And that's because we know that climate change isn't going to impact everyone equally. There are some of us who have the means, the capacity to adapt to it better. You know, we can move if our homes are at risk or, you know, but there are many, many across Massachusetts. And I think the fact that we have uh, coastal areas, we have heat. And as a public health expert, I know that, you know, Heat, for example, kills people, kills people in wealthy countries. Um, In Paris a few years ago, you know, so many elderly died because they didn't have access to air conditioning. So these are real threats today. And I think that's 
the transformative piece that climate change isn't something that is putting our lives and our health at threat for 30 years down the line. Today, there are people who are, who are at risk. And so it is really something we should celebrate both for Massachusetts, but also for the globe and, and hope that, you know, with this new administration, um, you know, the Biden administration, I'm looking forward to what the commitments at the national and then the global level, how we are going to raise ambition throughout. You know, I, I have had an, a very uh, long evolution in terms of understanding climate change and its impact, not only on the environment, but also on us as individuals. And as a person of color, my first encounter with climate change actually came when I was a student of architecture at Howard University in 1967, because we were designing roadways and shopping centers as part of our learning. And one of the things that the professors were emphasizing with us were the changing scales and uh, ratios for runoff. Now, at the time, I didn't realize how important it is that every time you asphalt over something, you are creating runoff. In other words, uh, normally the uh, when it rains, the water goes into the into the ground becomes ultimately part of the aquifer and stuff and it's handled by nature. But when you asphalt over something, suddenly you're creating um, uh, something that's impervious for the rain to get through and you've got to create now these big pools, if you will, for that runoff to settle. And as an architectural student, it was the first time I had encountered the whole idea that something was going on that something was amiss. Later on, I began, uh, I began to understand how the impact of my aunts and uncles who lived next to a refinery and the, and the impact of that smell uh, and the solvents that were being put in the air uh, impacted the cancer rate in that community. And then later on, um, uh, I also began to realize that all of the things that we were doing with regard to cars and trains and all of the emissions through my work at the university was impacting us in terms of our overall health. And then I happened to run into in 2006, a gentleman by the name of Ted McIntyre, when I was chairman of the Franklin Democratic Town Committee, who come busting into our meeting, uh, proposing that we had to take a big, huge stance here on climate change. And in doing so, he was also going to support this new candidate for Governor uh, Deval Patrick. Uh, He and a whole group of other people came in and literally threatened us with taking over the committee if we didn't adhere to, you know, their particular point of view of really taking on climate change as an issue for us as a committee. I see this as, and when you talk about the social justice aspect of it, one of the things that I have experienced is the lack of, I think, information and training and engagement with people in the minority community about what's happened or what's happening to them. And the pandemic has been a great example of that. Uh, you know, prior to us rolling out the vaccine, you know, everyone speculated about what was going to be happening in the black community, while at the same time in the black community, they were being overly impacted by the COVID uh, pandemic itself. They were being overly impacted with death. They were being overly impacted with, uh, you know, once the vaccines were out, with the lack of getting the vaccines. And so this idea of social justice, uh, and I guess I throw this out to my friends here on the panel, and especially to you guys who are the experts. What are we doing to, you know, to 
to do more than just provide lip service to this. It's great to have a piece in the, you know, in the build about social justice, but how are we really going to manage and make sure that those communities do see some benefit uh, 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 from that? That's a great question. And I'll also make sure that Ted gets a chance to talk, but I think actually having it codified into law for the first time, the definition of environmental justice, there's also will take into account climate change is now going to be considered a burden that could be placed on communities. So getting to your point, where some of these communities were seeing multiple environmental kind of disasters happening at the same time, they're subject to more climate change. They are where environmental justice communities are often where we're seeing some of the most polluting um, either substations or you know that we've seen and we've seen biomass plants in the western part of the state are getting cited in ej communities and for the first time we will with this bill take into effect cumulative impacts so the same plants don't get all put in the same areas and i'm talking about incineration i'm talking about anything that would have a negative environmental impact traditionally it had only been what is that one plant going to do and is that allowed or not but now it's going to be like is that one plant down the road from another plant that, and all of these cumulative impacts are negatively impacting one community more than another. So that will actually be a real concrete thing that we can point to and say, no, you need to take this into account. D, the Department of Environmental Protection needs to look at this when they're citing things. And they are now actually gonna also have environmental impact reports for any proposed plants or other you know, projects that are likely to cause negative environmental impacts, they're going to have to have this report if it is within a mile of environmental justice communities. So there's clear rules and regulations now that we can point to instead of saying there's something in statute or there's, you know, you probably shouldn't do this just because we're all looking at it and can see that this is not right. But now we have the legal standing to be able to say, no, legally, you need to take all of this into account so that hopefully we can be moving towards a more equitable commonwealth because we know for far too long that certain communities have bared the brunt of a lot of what we've seen. And we've seen it even closer to uh, Franklin and, you know, not quite so close, but in Somerset where we've seen the, you know, leave, what happens when a big, you know, coal plant leaves and where does that leave the town? So I think there's a lot of impacts that will finally be taken into account by these pieces of the bill. And we're very grateful for that, I will say. Natalia, I would love to have you share with everyone uh, the program that uh, you and I attended, I think it was yesterday, that was put on uh, by the Environmental League, which had the En-ROADS model. Would you share that program? Sure. That was a really wonderful um, simulation model, basically. Uh, professors from MIT, um, and Casey, correct me if I'm wrong, have put together a model that you and I and any regular person can go and try to see what certain actions, what different policies uh, would do in terms of our getting to our goal of reducing, you know, of, of not getting to climate change. And it's really intuitive and it's really wonderful to be able to uh, pull a lever and say, you know, I'm going to change our carbon tax or I'm going to put in place policies that call for more efficient uh, buildings or electrification of our transportation system. It doesn't go beyond what is possible today. So you can't electrify planes or electrify boats. You know, it is within the technological, but there is a lever for like, I will invest in new technologies too and and, and hope for that. There's 
Um, and this way it's, it's a learning tool, but also an advocacy tool to show people that, you know, it will take actions. There is no silver bullet. I think that was the key message. You can't change one thing alone. You can't say, I will do, you know, I will compost. And that is the end of the day. And it takes us beyond personal responsibility, which is clearly important. We as individuals can do a lot to what government will have to do. And some of it is going to be pretty radical. But the take-home message is that we have a lot of different approaches. They work synergistically and sometimes there's feedback loops. So, you know, you may do one thing and that will actually impact on a different policy. So you have to think in systems. Uh, it's complex. Uh, and what has, was wonderful about the simulation exercise is we could each create a, a different plan for how to get to the end goal. And what we were told is that this tool has been used to convince people across the aisle. It's not uh, a partisan tool and it's, it's useful. I will add, Jeff, that while I really like that model, I also think that there is a lot, you know, there's technical solutions and, and then there's also, you know, the advocacy. And we, we got to it before we started recording. Ted was talking about, you know, young women. I, I read somewhere that the most important sort of the most convincing on, on climate policy, the person who can convince people the most are 12 year old girls to their sort of Republican dads. I need to find that study, but it's it's something about young women talking to their fathers is the way to move forward. And, you know, we see people you know, like Greta, she's she's obviously not alone. She's sim signifying that power of, of advocacy. And, you know, she doesn't need that tool. And if you have listened to 15, 17-year-olds speak about climate change, they speak in the most compelling way that, you know, you have ruined my future. Your generation needs to fix this. And I love the idea of being able to, to play with like which policy, what policy, but really it's ambition, ambition on all policies. That's the takeaway for me, at least. You know, I really um, want to work with Ted and Pete and everyone on this panel. They, um, the folks up at uh, UMass Lowell in working with this team have put together um, a toolkit that you can actually do this simulation as a, as a form of a game and you could do it online, you could do it in person. And I think that's a program uh, and a simulation uh, conversation that I'd love to bring to the community and do this uh, as an online forum for everyone to have a chance to play with the lovers, uh, have a chance to hear uh, some of the potential solutions uh, to the problem and, and the impact. Uh, I was amazed uh, being a part of that program. Um, I didn't think I'd be able to uh, stay focused for two hours on something like that. Uh, I, I, when I first saw it, I said, there's no way I can sit here for two hours. But it was easy. Once you, know, you saw the conversation uh, taking off and you saw people asking questions and you saw movement uh, of these levers, it really brought it home and made it crystal clear. So that's my call to action. Who's, who's with me to bring this simulation to Franklin? That would be, a, I think it's a great, uh, great thing to do. I guess one of, the, one of the reactions I have, I've had never personally done the inroads, but I think I know the kind of simulation you're talking about. The take-home lesson I would have is that there are many levers, many approaches. I think Natalia touched on this, but that trickles down to a personal. And I think if you if you were to do something like the En-ROADS and you say, oh my goodness, you know, health has this much of an impact or this other lever, the question is, how does that resonate with you personally? 
because climate change touches so many aspects of our lives. Across, I mean, it's just unbelievably wide range of things. My request or challenge is that everyone think about how they resonate, what their particular passion is and how that fits into the climate movement. Because we all have to find a way in. It's a fact of life over the next 50 years. And the question is whether or not you're an artist or you have work on uh, public health or if you like banking or you want to do politics, there's an avenue in for everyone. And it's very, it's a, it's a very satisfying thing because you're exercising your own passion, but to this greater public good. So I think the En-ROADS might be a, a, a session of the En-ROADS would be a way to show people how they can get into the movement as well. One of the things that's going to affect me immediately and personally is the town of Franklin, we're talking about impervious surfaces, is, is exploring a 2% increase in real estate tax on impervious surfaces. They want to set a, a separate fee like a trash or sewer fee for impervious surfaces. And so every house or business would, would uh, be paying a fee uh, based on the, that area. Now, how important is that single piece in the overall climate change? And can someone tell me what the real uh, heavy contributions uh, to climate change are. I, I know you, you all say that it's everything and not one thing particular, but can we highlight what are some of the real high-level uh, things that are affecting the environment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think one of the important things that does come out of this climate bill is we are beginning to address two areas that haven't we haven't really addressed before, one being the built environment. That is the second leading cause of emissions after transportation. And the state is taking critical um, steps to address the transportation. We're going to be part of the Transportation and Climate Initiative, which is partnering with several other states to look at trying to reduce emissions as a whole and also provide a funding source. Because like you mentioned, you know, cities and towns are looking at ways to raise money to address some of the um, causes or to address some of the, you know, results of climate change. There are going to need to be in some areas, they're going to need to be seawalls, but more importantly, we are going to need to transition some of our housing stocks, some of our, you know, commercial stock to make sure that we're electrifying those buildings. Sometimes that's going to mean, you know, deep retrofits. Sometimes that is just going to mean, you know, being able to electrify, you know, electrify the energy source or the heating source. But also, you know, those are two sources that we haven't begun to address in real earnest. You know, some people have been driving um, electric vehicles for quite some time. I know the chairman is one of them, but we still need to make sure that the infrastructure is there so that people can overcome some of the range anxiety, because at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to reach net zero unless we do start making personal choices to have electric vehicles to begin to electrify your homes. And some of that is going to take funding that these cities and towns are, are going to need to raise in the state and using the federal funds, quite frankly, you know, I think at ELM, we are happy to see some of the federal funds being used for things like water infrastructure that um, Dr. Michael, uh, Dr. Walker Jones was mentioning. You know, when we're talking about roads, we are going to need to have runoff. We're going to need to make sure our infrastructure is resilient. We're seeing rising tides. You know, one of the things coming into this work that I never thought I would spend a lot of time talking about is culverts and like removing dams, but 
culverts for a city or a town is critical, making sure that the water is actually running under the road, not over the road. And what does that take? And trust me, I, I don't even think I knew what a culvert was before I got to ELM, but it's something that's happening in every district, in every town across the state. And hopefully we're taking the steps to get there, but it's great to have conversations like this because it's gonna take all of us, but, and as Ted said, there's many ways to get involved. You know, I used to work for the Lung Association, so, you know, talking to people who have asthma, which is higher than most people, uh, higher in Massachusetts than in most other states. So that's, an, you know, one way people get involved. But we also at ELM work really closely with businesses who realize this is affecting their bottom line. And if they don't start taking climate seriously, you know, there might not be an industry for them to continue to work in. So it's great to see actually so many distinctive um, voices on this panel uh, to and why this is a big issue for everyone. So it's really great to see. Casey, you're absolutely right. I just wanted to point out that part of the bill and to Frank's question, the question of the built environment is an important one. The organization that I volunteer my time with is the Massachusetts Climate Action Network, which has been I think a lead has certainly been part of the effort to talk about building codes, right? Again, something I never thought I'd be talking about as a climate activist, but a building code for how do you build a new house and the efficiency of the quality of new construction from an energy perspective and questions like whether or not all new homes should be completely electric. That is to say no natural gas heater in the basement is an important one going forward for the next 50 years. And it touches, just to close the circle, it goes back to questions of, of environmental justice and, and public health, that there are across the state communities that are challenged, that have a housing stock that is not up to snuff. I mean, there's triple deckers all through the state of Massachusetts that need to be addressed if we expect long-term to reduce our carbon emissions. And that's a an enormous, avenue for future work. I mean, Casey, I don't know if you if you agree, but I mean, the, the, like the built environment and where we go with that is a critical future pathway. No question. I think it's going to be great to get people back into jobs, but also something that's going to have to happen over time. One thing I want to add to uh, Frank's question, uh, and um, I, I thought I heard you saying, you know, what are, what are the one or two things that we can do to curb this crisis? Um, if I learned anything from the simulation, there isn't just one or two things. You know, uh, I, I, I recall uh, the first lever that was moved yesterday was a, was a carbon tax, and they moved the needle on the carbon tax quite high. That only reduced the, uh, the temperature change. Um, it, it was significant, but it wasn't sufficient to uh, bring it down to where we need it to be. It's going to take multiple levers in multiple uh, areas of, you know, building transportation throughout the, the sectors and the development of new technologies and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, planting trees. I mean, uh, I think they talked about planting a trillion trees and that only moved the temperature slightly. So it's, uh, it's definitely multiple uh, aspects that uh, are going to be needed to address this. And, and culverts and asphalt are just, you know, many pieces of the puzzle. So uh, keep that in mind. Well, Jeff, you've touched on an interesting one in that you know, I've been listening and, and sort of assessing everything that everything's been saying. Uh, this is PJ. Uh, anyway, 
it's very clear that it's unclear. That is, this appears something of a Gordian knot. That is, there's a tremendous amount of complexity. And, and, and certainly, Jeff, you well know that if you want to sell something to the public, it has to be reduced to its absolute essence in some way. You know, what's the single sentence? What's the elevator pitch? And unfortunately, when you get into the, when you get into the deep end of climate change and climate management and what now most recently people refer to as climate crisis, to completely unfold all the layers of that discussion is tremendously complex. Uh, for instance, okay, making the electric car argument. Well, some people would say on the surface that, well, whether it's electric or whether it's a conventional engine, you know, the energy's got to come from somewhere. If I plug it in, uh, you know, I'm simply taking up electricity that could be used for other things. And in the beginning of the day, that electricity came from a, a fuel plant. Now, in Biden's discussion about infrastructure, uh, the recent infrastructure bill addresses many things that benefit climate change. That is, not only the bridges, roads, airports argument, but the more forward-looking argument of uh, charging stations and uh, internet for all. But on the charging stations issue, suddenly when you start to look at green energy, that is, if your energy for your car is coming from wind or solar, then what you now have is a completion of the entire story. That is, rather than warming the earth, to run your car, because you are extracting energy by wind or extracting energy from the geomass, you know, by solar, that's what they do. They extract energy. They don't, they don't burn it. And in extracting energy in some micro minute minuscule way, these energy producers or, or energy harvesters actually cool the earth oddly. That is, they calm the winds and they take sunlight, which has energy in it and heat and converts that to electricity. So I, I won't make a strong argument for cooling, but what they don't do is they don't contribute significantly to the fossil fuel issue. If, if you look at the entire infrastructure, all of the infrastructure, that is the ability to generate electricity that doesn't produce massive amounts of heat, connect that to the transportation problem, that's a real gain. Uh, finally, then there's the issue of pay me now, pay me later. Pay me now, you know, there's the quip if you're lucky enough to live on the water, well, you're lucky enough. But if the water's going to move, if it's going to rise, that changes the paradigm, doesn't it? Uh, so there are folks who will definitely be affected by climate change. Look at the discussion going on in Miami. So um, what does it take to mitigate an entire city? Uh, the recent flooding we saw, in fact, down at Harbor Towers, down by the aquarium, even in Boston during, you know, a high raging storm, suddenly, you know, that whole, lever, that whole area on Atlantic Avenue was seeing water running across the roads. And we hadn't seen this before. So it, if we have to come to grips with the fact that mitigation is required for the long term to save our coastal cities, seems to me that if we can get in front of it, managing client, climate change sooner than later is actually a smaller price to pay. Because you get a gain. No, I think I mean I I would I would agree that early action is the is the uh, is called for. I wanted to go and, back and to I would say more affordable. 
Yeah, cheaper now than, yeah, absolutely. Those cases have been made, there's economic studies. I guess I wanted to go back to the question about what's the simple, the simple description of why we should be doing this. And in that, it, 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 the, the, I think that what you're going to do is turn the, the, the problem on its head because we get, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole about uh, wind turbines and electricity and all the bad stuff that can happen. I think the vision of the Green New Deal which I think we need to protect as a as a concept and not let it turn into an epithet, right? But the Green New Deal provides a positive vision of where we can all go together and how everything fits together. It's, it, it, it's not a technical discussion of let's build more wind turbines, which of course that has to happen to Jeff's point. There's millions of things that have to come together. And what we're trying to build is a positive, just future. Right. And we have this because of the, again, the, the enormity of the energy transition has so many other things attached to it that what we should be pitching is the idea that we can build a better, more just, more sustainable world. Right. And, and that ultimately it will cost less to, to act now. But that's the direction I think we should be going, it is useful to go in. Uh, Casey, I don't know if you would agree with that, but uh, that's my take on it. Yeah. I mean, I do agree that it is easy when we are easier to try to boil it down into into one statement you know i think we're still trying to figure out even at the state level what exactly a, something like a green new deal would look like uh, and i think in some ways that's why there are so many environmental organizations because everyone does have an idea of how we should get there um, which never makes it easy uh, and even in you know, to the chagrin of many lawmakers, if you look at our priority legislation for the upcoming year, trying to boil it down to just a few pieces can be really hard. But I think one of the ways we are also looking at it now is now we have a roadmap. And the question is, how do we get there? So looking at the various components, it's nice that the current legislation builds or the current law builds out the several subsectors and the sublimits that we need to look at. So we need to address something in transportation. We need to address something in housing. And it's gonna take a piecemeal effort to get there. And I think that's one of the ways we're looking at it is we have a plan, now let's start to build how to get there. And I think it takes all of us. And I think one of the most important things that I've learned at the State House or I've seen, and one of the things that really gives me a lot of hope is that climate change is an issue that the legislature has really committed to addressing every session. There's a lot of issues at, in the state house, in the building that get addressed, you know, once every few sessions and there's a big bill and then they move on to the next topic because there are so many issues before them at all times. But it has been great to see certainly the past few sessions, probably since the Global Warming Solution Act was actually put into place back in 2008, there has been a climate bill in one form or another every session. And I think that goes to show that everyone in all sectors and in all corners of our state are taking it seriously. And we all might not agree quite on how we're gonna get there yet, but we agree that we should take those steps. And that's actually what gives me a lot of hope is that we're gonna keep taking steps, we're gonna keep trying, and we're gonna keep moving those levers like in En-ROADS to try to figure out what's the best way we can do it, what's the most affordable way we can do it, and what's the most equitable way we can do it. And so I think that gives me a lot of hope going into what I can't believe is now a new session given how, uh, the last session kind of ended up, but it gives me a lot of hope for how we can address it. And I think in some ways, going back to Dr. Lino's first point, I might still be that 12-year-old girl, granted a little bit older, uh, or maybe a lot older, but which radio, so you can't tell. Um, and we are, I'm still trying to convince 
by Republican dad that this is, you know, something that's important. And now he has his little compost pile. I think it's because he will do what my mom tells him to do. But I do think that, you know, my son, who is only two, is going to, you know, be even better at this than I am. And that really does give me a lot of hope for where we're going. You know, you know, all of you have brought up some very interesting points from both locally here in Franklin to the state. Let me draw us into a an even broader uh, perspective with two aspects. One, you know, all of the things we do here in Massachusetts, and let's say even ultimately uh, within the United States, can be undone very quickly by third world countries. And I'll give you an example in terms of Brazil chopping down the rainforest, okay, uh, in order to expand their industrialization. Everything we do here is going to be counteracted for every square mile that they uh, that they uh, take out uh, the Brazilian rainforest. In Africa, if we don't do something about the heat and the famine uh, and the lack of food, uh, again, everything we do here is going to be undone in their efforts to try to, again, mitigate uh, their own problems. In China, if 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 the Chinese, uh, and believe it or not, I think, you know, in some ways they may be ahead of us in terms of dealing with the, with the climate change. So let's talk about the little that we're doing and a lot that they think that they're doing, uh, uh, which is my second point. Instead of building more efficient cars, they're building more efficient transportation systems. And it's a matter of, for example, you know, I read an article uh, just the other day about in the infrastructure plan, how Biden is putting a lot of money into high-speed rail. And I'm railing against high-speed rail. And I'll tell you why, because I think it's old technology. I think that we ought to be looking at uh, electromagnetic trains, okay, much more efficient, faster, and ultimately can replace airplanes. But yet, again, when you look at uh, what China's doing, they're saying, okay, we're not going to invest in airplanes or in our air. We're going to invest in electromagnetic trains. And they're going from the Himalayan uh, border all the way to the coast with rapidly trying to put in those structures to move people. Again, you know, those, those particular types of trains, by the way, for our listeners, an electromagnetic train can go at supersonic speed. So there's a lot of other technology and innovation that's going to be needed in order to make that effectively work in ground-based. But at the same time, high-speed rail has, what, a maximum of 270 miles an hour? And so, you know, how do you, and I guess to address your question, Frank, I don't really think there is one. I think everyone on this panel would agree. There's no one real answer. There's no what you've got. This thing has got to be approached from almost uh, uh, similar to everything that we do. It's got to be embedded in every single department, in every single aspect of all of our legislation and everything we do. And at the end of the day, why do we do that? Because we either have a planet that our, uh, <laughs> you know, that all of our future generations can live on or we fry and there will be no sustainable planet. Michael, I gotta, I, I gotta jump in. I, mean, I think that I am not as clear that everything the America does will be reversed by uh, what happens in Africa or necessarily Brazil. I think that I have seen 
stuff. I mean, I can't pull up the references right now that talk about the carbon elites, that people in the United States predominate in how much carbon and in, in, in that the first step is to look to ourselves and not uh, talk about what's going on in, I mean, of course, we need global leadership, right? Full stop, right? We, you mean, but the idea that somehow we need to look outside the United States for juicy targets for carbon reduction uh, just isn't true. I think that the uh, uh, the whole concept of, again, this goes, the interesting thing is this goes way deep, but I mean, the colonization of the atmosphere by the carbon elites in the United States, putting our junk up in the air over all of the global South, right? I mean, it's a way to think of it, right? And it's incredibly unfair. And so we need to look to ourselves. You said so much, Mike, I just want to, I mean, I'll stop. I won't go on too long, but I had the good fortune before I retired a couple of years ago to take the high-speed train from Beijing to Shanghai. And it is wonderful. Right. If the United States could build, some, you know, an electromagnetic train from New York, from Boston to Chicago, be fantastic. But I had a conversation recently with someone and I, I challenged a transportation expert. I said, what would you do if you had $30 billion from Joe Biden to revamp transportation? And one of the first things he said is I would make super cool electric buses that serve you a hot towel every 10 minutes in your reclining chair, you know, and get you to Chicago in six hours, because that's going to happen way before an electric train. I, anyway, so I'll stop there. But I mean, you said a lot, Michael. I think it's a lot. Natalia, what, what do you think? Yeah, I want to jump in just because I, I worked at the UN for a decade. And I think the conversations, the global conversation is really important from an equity perspective, as well as from, uh, you know, who is to blame. And the US is one of the largest emitters globally. So we have a huge responsibility on the global front. And the question there that comes up, Michael, from the equity perspective is countries that are, you know, transitioning now, you know, into kind of a higher income, they're saying, wait, you took advantage of the planet and did it. And now your population can live at a certain standard. We have to care about our populations. And and then you have small countries, especially small island states. You know, a friend of mine is working at uh, UNDP in the Maldives that are literally planning on where are they going to buy land to move their entire population. So we have an existential threat for some small island developing states. We have countries that have gained a lot of power, you know, whether it's Brazil's, the India's or the China's that, that really want to serve their populations because they have people living in dire poverty, you know, under a dollar a day. And so there, there's this tension of, we need to make sure that people can live at a standard of, you know, not in poverty. And there's a really interesting uh, economist. Um, I need to find her name. She talks. She talks about donut economics. Do, do you know her name, Casey? Kate something. Kate Walworth. Kate. Yeah. So she takes that into account that people should need to get out of that donut. Like if you're living in, in deep poverty and you don't have enough money to, you know, send your kids to school, if your kids are dying from preventable diseases, you need a little bit more of the energy. Like you need to to be able to spend some of that. And you get into that donut. And then there's many of us in the US who are outside that donut. Our daily footprint is just outside. So we need to bring people back in to that kind of donut that, that serves everyone. So I don't think it's fair to say, you know, in fact, what we should be saying is, can we help countries leapfrog? Can we get them the technologies they need? Can we ensure that they don't have to follow the same path? Because that isn't a path that suited or worked for us, it didn't work for the planet. Are there alternative paths? And do we, the scientists in the US, in wealthy countries, can we invest that technology? Can we ensure? And I have seen China 
And literally, I think it's the air pollution argument that Casey brought forward that, you know, with people in China and India having to wear masks, the air pollution has become political. And so it was a little bit more necessary for them to take real drastic changes. And that health argument was helpful. So it's tricky. Um, I am optimistic that, you know, now that we are back in uh, the Paris sort of agreement, we can both be leaders to take care of home and ensure that we are leading in a way that brings people along so that we're not countering. But I, I do think it's important not to take the stance of, you know, the U.S. is doing all this great thing today and, you know, the rest of you are, are falling behind because historically, you know, that's a different story. Natalia, I mean, I just, I completely agree, but I, I wanted to throw out a metaphor for people to put in people's heads about how to leapfrog, right? Because I agree with you. You can ask yourself how the United States over the course of decades installed landlines to, to for every telephone in the country, right? Huge amount of infrastructure. But then they didn't have to do that in India or China because of the mobile phones, right? And the same kind of thinking holds true for energy distribution, right? You don't have to build coal plants necessarily in this day and age. You can have distributed generation, you have a solar panel in every village kind of thing. So there are opportunities for the United States to lead and help less developed countries, I guess, if that's a good, I mean, the, the, to, to achieve parity that they deserve, right? So anyway, I'll stop there. Well, let me be clear. I, you know, uh, again, I think the conversation went in the direction that I guess I was contemplating. Uh, but maybe I didn't express it well, because I also agree that we're probably the largest polluter in the world. But my point is that we're much more elitist rather than leaders. And I guess one of the uh, aspects that I'm really concerned about is that we're not helping those countries. So you, you guys did pick up on the point that I'm trying to make, which is that we've got to be leaders. We've got to be able to help these countries. We cannot say to Brazil, oh, you guys are hurting us because they're trying to industrialize and do the best for their country. Uh, my point is that we ought to be trying to help Brazil and Africa and follow the model of China and make some hard decisions. And I think there are both short-term and long-term projects. I mean, I see, for example, electromagnetic magnetic trains as a hundred year project. That's not something that we start tomorrow and it's going to be done in 20 years. You know, that particular endeavor won't be done for at least 120, maybe 150 years, but we've got to at least start someplace because here are the things that I think are unsustainable. The individual automobile is under, unsustainable, no matter what form we put it in. The idea that, you know, we, we don't need a mass transit system to move folks cheaply from one part of the country and quickly to another part of the country is that idea that we don't need that transportation system is unsustainable. Uh, the idea that we cannot... Uh, you know, that we have homeless folks who are exposed and the inhumanity of that in terms of our ability to convert and to build more effective both public housing projects and individual homes, okay, is something that we've got to start to address. So, you know, I'm in agreement with all of you. Michael, I would just, just I would just very, very briefly say that part of the interesting vision for the future is that the United States can begin to again see itself as a, a polity, a community 
a, a unity that can take these big actions and do these things as, I mean, that's another sort of side benefit of what we're working towards here is the, the realization that we sort of get out of this neoliberal market-driven hyper-individualism thing into a place where we can take steps as a country and trust ourselves to do that. I just want to jump in with, I know we're running towards the end, but you know, I've been sitting back and, and reflecting on, you know, some of the things that we've seen over the past couple of years, and America is beginning to take a, a new leadership role in this effort. But I think back, uh, and I just was reading the latest biography of, of uh, Jimmy Carter, and it, the, the book opens with the notion or the, the fact that prior to his leaving office, he had installed solar panels on the roof of the West Wing in the White House. And when Ronald Reagan took over, one of the first things he did was to remove those solar panels from the roof. Uh, And I remember going to visit Jimmy Carter's library, and I wanted to have my picture with that solar panel because that was back in 1980. and And I sat there and I wondered where we'd be today had we continued in our leadership role from 1980. Now, that's 41 years ago, um, and and it's sad that we didn't take advantage of uh, that vision and that foresight. But I think we're getting back on the road. And and the final question I'm going to have, because Casey alluded to it when she was talking about conversations with her dad, and we still have people uh, who do not believe that we need to do anything. And, and, and I recall this one statement I got from someone saying, it's, he, he said, it's the height of hubris to think that humans have been able to affect the global environment. There are still people out there who believe firmly in this. How do we have that conversation? Is it worthwhile to have that conversation? I happen to believe it's necessary to have that conversation. And that's why I'm delighted that we did this today. But how do we overcome that? Can I, I'll jump into that if, uh, unless somebody else, I mean, it seems to me, Jeff, that there are the cultural ideological blinders that people have at this point is a choice, right? And some people are just not, it, my, my sense is that, uh, my feeling is I want to talk to the people who are mildly concerned, but don't don't fully understand it, whose hair is not yet on fire, right? There's a big group of people in the middle that can be influenced. There is a committed fringe, and it's a cultural, again, it's been turned into a cultural identity issue that's very hard to dislodge. But for my money, we want to get to the middle ground of people who are open and if we can get them, I think you're talking, I mean, just to throw into, I saw a, a report as I was staring at my Twitter box this morning from the Bar Foundation on a public poll of Massachusetts voters. I mean, they all believe the science, right, by a vast majority. So in the sense, we need to exercise the power that we have of the people that are at least sympathetic. I, mean, I know we're running out of time, so I'll stop there. Maybe someone else has a comment. I have a comment going back to uh Franklin and other communities are going to take out of their budget so that they can spend more for other town services and charge a fee for impervious services for environmental issues. So first of all, do you really want the battle of those people that don't know much about climate change over that issue? 
And how much of, of a difference does that capital or that taxation service fee on an impervious service go to remedy the street sweeper that you see go, go down the street? How pay for that? Are the other issues that this money is going to go for, which the towns are already paying for to some degree in the taxes? Is that the issue that you really want people to learn about environmental change? Well, I think, Frank, one of the things that I'd point out is, as I mentioned before, this almost appears to be a Gordian knot. But uh, with respect to mitigating the asphalt coverage, impervious services, there is a direct cause and effect. And I think it's good to note. Franklin, like many growing towns, has to manage its water supply which in fact at this point is threatened. If there's anything that is more basic is, you know, beyond the need for air is the need for quality water. And I know that DPW works very hard at making sure that we have that for a growing population. So part of it is getting rainwater back into the ground. As you know, when we built our studio, we mitigated that. We put in a rain garden and we put in all the necessary water management systems, um, when we rebuilt the building. And we were happy to incorporate that into the redesign. And now more and more town management through the planning board and through the conservation commission is managing all of that. So there's a direct cause and effect. What we're doing is we are ensuring that the water table, the health of the earth underneath us and our water supply are good, not only today, but also good tomorrow. So I don't have a problem with finding creative ways to mitigate Uh, the surface that we live on. And I would also say that, Ted, you know, sign sign me up for the hot towels as long as the hot towels are solar heated by the sun panels on the roof of the bus. (laughs) I'm I'm up for that. I'm going to jump in with one thing on public opinion. I I do think that things have shifted tremendously. and, And I'm really optimistic because of the next generation, because of people like Sunrise, because of, you know, your organization's I also want to say that in public health, we sometimes say that, you know, you can make it easier for people to live healthy lives and they don't need to think about it. It's not a matter of teach someone to eat seven portions of fruit and veggies, but make fruit and veggies available and cheap. So there's a lot that we can do without convincing people. If public transportation was free, if it was easy and accessible, people wouldn't get into their cars. So they don't need to do it out of a climate consideration. So let's make those choices to our built environment, to our uh, daily lives, so that people are living greener lives that are healthier. You can use the health metric without having to convince them about climate change. So there is a way to move forward both on the advocacy front and just making the changes that are necessary that are win-wins on health, environment, and the economy. Well, uh, this is Frank Falby, your host, and we've had a extensive discussion on the environment, which I'm sure we will revisit in many different aspects and other ways. And as Pete always says at the end of the program, and I'm going to let him say it again, if you would like to contribute, how can they do that to our conversation, Pete? Anyone who has thoughts that they'd like to share with us? If you'd like to participate on a future program, if you'd like to comment on what you've heard today, you can contact us at info info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also love to have you engage if you'd love to participate in a future project. Till then, for Frank and for our entire panel, I'm Peter J. Thanks for joining us. This is Franklin Public Radio. Franklin Public Radio.